We're going to pick up uh, again in Acts this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 4. I know we've been away from Acts for a month and a half. So uh, I'll give you a little reminder when we start. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you that you have uh, given us this day to set apart, um, to be with you and to be with each other. We ask that you would help us as we hear uh, this morning what you have for us in your word. Help us to have open hearts and minds and ears. Uh, Lord, let us be ready uh, to do as you would have us do and believe what you would have us believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Like I said, I should remind you where we left off. It's been a month and a half. Uh, we, uh, I won't give you the whole review of Acts. You're welcome. Let's just uh, think about what happened in chapter 3, because we're going to be in chapter 4. Around uh, 3 p.m., which is the hour of prayer, Peter and John are, are passing through uh, one of the temple gates. In this case, it's a gate that was called uh, Beautiful. And there was a man sitting there. He had been lame from birth unable to walk. Every day, someone would carry him to that gate, and he would sit there at the gate, uh, begging for money. And the man sees Peter and John as they, as they approach, and he asks, asks them for money. And, and Peter uh, says to him, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The muscles the bones, tendons, the, the, the balance, the coordination, everything necessary to walk formed instantaneously for this man. He, he stands up. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no learning process. There's no physical therapy. It's just like Adam on the, on the first day up out of the dust. He has perfectly formed legs and he's able, he's able to walk. But he's not just walking. He's, he's leaping around like a, like a kid, uh, praising, praising God. Now, as I said, he's been there begging for his whole life, I guess, or for a long, many, many years. Uh, people know who this, who this person is, and so when they see him leaping up and down, there's going to be a surprise. People are going to be surprised. Is that, is that the guy that was by the gate? Uh, begging every day, and someone else will know I can't be the guy that was by the gate begging every day because that guy can't walk. And, but then he's walking, he's jumping, and then they get closer and they see, oh, that's him. And so as the news spread and people recognized it was him, uh, we're told people ran from all over the temple to Peter and, and John and came to see what was, what was going on. And as they do that, Peter and John and the man uh, make their way to Solomon's portico, which is a kind of covered porch uh, framing the uh, huge courtyard in the temple. Thousands could probably gather, thousands did gather there, and Peter preaches. And you can read his sermon in verses 12 through 26, but I won't make you do that. I'll I'll summarize it. Um, Peter says, don't, I don't want anyone here to think that we did this. We healed this man by our power or our, our piety. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you delivered over to be crucified, God raised him up and he glorified him. That is, he enthroned him in the, in the heavens, in heaven. And, and it's in, in his name, in Jesus' name, and by his power and by his authority that this man who you know to be lame now walks. 
he says, in the midst of this, you killed the author of life. But then he also said, if you repent and trust in him, trust in, in Jesus, your sins, even this terrible sin of, of crucifying the Christ, will be blotted out. That's the language he uses, removes, wiped away forever. And the last thing he says before he's interrupted there in verse 26, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. And I said he was interrupted. This is not the end of his sermon, but he was cut short. As they were speaking, we learn in verse 1, uh, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, uh, captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, uh, there were lots of priests, and, and many of them, not all, uh, maybe most of them were Sadducees. Uh, the captain of the temple you see there, that's the captain of the temple guard, the temple police. He's the second highest ranking priest uh, there is, and he is also a Sadducee. And then the Sadducees were referenced there. It probably means that the leaders of the Sadducees. So we should ask, who are, who are the Sadducees? Well, if, if you remember the money changers in the temple and, the, and the, uh, the people selling all the animals for sacrifice in the temple courts, and Jesus got angry about that and drove them all out. Well, the chief priests, the Sadducees, ran that whole operation. They still run that whole operation. And so these are wealthy men. They're making massive profits every day. Um, the Sadducees, we might call them a political party slash religious denomination. They're kind of both. Um, they're the minority in, in Israel. Not, there's not a lot of uh, Sadducees, but they have got the power and, and the money. Now, the Pharisees, we know a lot about the Pharisees. They're the Sadducees' rivals. And the Pharisees, we've talked a lot about them. They, they believe in life after death, that after you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord. And they believe uh, in what's called the general resurrection. The resurrection is going to take place at the end of time. They believe that. They believe that God inspired the entire Old Testament as we know it. They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, but the Old Testament as we know it, they believe it was inspired and authoritative. And the Pharisees kept that massive set of, of regulations that's called the, 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 the tradition of, of, of the elders. Well, the Sadducees reject all of that. They don't take any of that. They, uh, they only believe that the the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are the ones that have authority. The others they'll read, but not in the same way. They reject the tradition of the elders, which is good. We reject that too. They reject the notion of life after death and the idea of the resurrection. When you die, according to the Sadducees, that's it. There's nothing afterwards. That sounds kind of bleak. But many do find comfort in that idea. The Sadducees have long since died out. There are no more Sadducees, even in Jewish circles. They're gone. Um, but lots of people, maybe you know some, really want to believe that when you die, you just die. And there's comfort in that because if that's true, there's no accountability for the things you've done here uh, during your life. You just 
go away. Not, not, and there's never any kind of judgment, no accountability for the things you've done and, and said. Now, one more thing about the, the belief that when you die, you just, you just cease to exist. Um, what that would mean then is that uh, uh, if this, well, it would mean that this life is all the heaven you're going to get or all the hell you're going to get. So you better make the most, most of it. That's probably why the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, were very friendly toward, toward the Romans. Let's not upset the most powerful empire in the world. Let's, let's keep them happy and be, and be their friends. Let's keep our power and our luxury and our status. So when the priests and the temple captain and the Sadducees hear about what's happening at Solomon's portico, a large crowd gathering, a man whipping them into some kind of frenzy um, in, the, in the courtyard, they know they've got trouble. They don't, the Romans don't like unrest, and so the Sadducees don't like unrest. So they don't, they don't like the whole idea of someone preaching to a huge crowd in the courtyard. But when they hear what the man is saying, Jesus of Nazareth has, has risen from the dead and he will forgive your sins. That's when they, we, we've got to shut this down. Now the Sadducees are, are plugged in. They, they know what's going on in, in Jerusalem. They know what happened at Pentecost. So they've heard the claims that Peter is making about Jesus before. And they don't believe them for a moment. But if the people believe it, if the people believe that Jesus is alive and that he's really the Christ and that he forgives sins, what happens to the temple? What happens to the priesthood? Well, it's all over at that point. Uh, that would overturn everything. So, so that's why we, we, just, we need to interrupt this man and shut him up. And that's pretty much how the preaching of the gospel is met in every age. Consider the core religious doctrine of our day. The true, authentic, essential you, that's where you find joy, life, and truth. But, you know, family and, and church and, and tradition uh, all tend to stand in the way. They keep you from realizing the true you. So what you need to do is you need to, to discover yourself. Who are you? Are you a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, or something in between? You need to figure that out for yourself. Uh, who do you want to be with? Do you want to be with a man or a woman or another person like yourself or someone different? Uh, or something in between, you need to discover your authentic self and then you need to live authentically. And then you'll be happy and you'll really begin to live. Don't let anybody get in the way. Don't let your parents get in the way. Don't let your church get in the way. Don't let your, even your body get in the way. That's the religion of our day. Millions of children are being catechized into it. Online, social media, traditional media, our government, celebrities, the corporations embrace it and enforce it. It's perfect for making money, too. You can get rich off it. Healthcare providers are making fortunes, mutilating bodies and pushing drugs onto children to, to keep puberty away. 
All that's monetizing the ancient lie. You can be like God. You can create yourself. You can determine for yourself what's right and what's wrong. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, you, you have no hope in you. You are made in God's image. That's true and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But that image has been, has been ruined. So going deeper into me to discover my true self only makes things worse. Because that is where the ruin is rooted. Jesus says, says this himself. Out of the heart, he says, comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, still quoting Jesus here, come from within and they defile a person. You're, you, you and me, we are like that beggar. I'm like that beggar. I cannot stand up on my own power, and there's nothing that I can do to heal myself. But God sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, to take up the ruin and restore it, to bear the burden and the punishment for my sin and to die in my place and yours. And God has raised him from the dead so that you and I might live and be forgiven and have everlasting life. And he's coming back to judge and to rule Trust him now and you live forever. Reject him now and you will be under the sentence of condemnation. Now, do you see the threat in that? Do you hear the threat in that? If Jesus is actually risen from the dead, everything I just told you is true. If everything, if he rose from the dead, everything I told you is true. If he's risen, Jesus is Lord and I'm not. There's a, there's a truth that transcends me, a truth that transcends my truth. There's a truth to whom I must submit. That's, that's why people today, uh, more and more, hate the, the truth of the gospel and try so hard to stamp it out and to twist it into something it's not. And that's not new to our day. It happens in every age. The idols of every age tremble before Jesus and his resurrection. Because he exposes the ancient lie. We can be our own gods. And he lays bare the human heart. So, of course, we shouldn't be surprised the Sadducees interrupt G G uh, Peter's sermon. Uh, of course, they arrest them, verse 3, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, it was against the rules to have a trial at night. And uh, they, for the purpose of, of transparency, you want to have a trial in the open where everyone can see what's going on. Now, you might remember, they ignored that rule for Jesus in his trial. They had his trial at night, or at least two of them they had at night. Um, but they have made this arrest publicly in front of everybody. Everyone's watching, so they can't just do what they would normally do and ignore the rules and get rid of these guys. They have to go about it in the right way. So they, they hold them in custody until the next morning. Nevertheless, despite their being arrested and put in jail, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. You should notice it's only counting the men, so the full number is much higher. Now, now this, this is precisely what the Sadducees were trying to prevent. Arrest the ringleaders, Shut them up, put them in jail, and you've got a nice, important show of force in public for everyone. 
Everyone can see, following these men, listening to what they say, is not a healthy life choice. Seems like that should work. I mean, in fact, you heard Peter's sermon. I gave you, I gave, I quoted part of it. The, you killed the author of life. Uh, that's not exactly a, a winsome way to bring people over to your side, especially if being on your side means the possibility of being arrested and thrown in jail. That kind of reasoning about, about what might bring people in or not, that sort of reasoning is, is why some say, you know what we should do? We need to be really easy on sin and on, on the cross and on the death parts of the gospel. Let's just preach Jesus loves you, which he does, and he accepts everything you're doing, which he doesn't. That way, we won't be kicked off social media and people will like us and come to our church. Church is. Now, the odd thing is, the churches who take that tack tend to be dying and losing members. But let's just say that wasn't true, even if they were attracting the whole world. Search the New Testament. Jesus and his apostles, when they preach, they go directly after the great sin of the day. They never avoid it. Go back and look at the number of times. It's three already in the book of Acts where Peter has said, uh, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. Pointing out over and over and over and over again the chief sin that's weighing upon their shoulders. Sometimes people ask, why do you always talk about sex? Because we, we, we have a great sin that's destroying many people and we better talk about it. Peter, uh, preaching to this crowd of people who demanded Jesus' crucifixion, doesn't say, doesn't decide to talk about how bad the Romans are. That would have been a great topic. The people would have loved to talk about how horrible the Romans are. He doesn't talk about how God wants you to turn your frown upside down and just be happy. That would have been another happy, nice topic. No, he tells them, you've killed the Son of God. But then offers them the wonderful news that Jesus came to save sinners. And however counterintuitive it may seem, and it does seem counterintuitive, it's that truth, it's the truth about sin and forgiveness in Jesus. It's the law and the gospel that God uses to, to change hearts. He's, he's done that here. More than 5,000 of them. Now, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, Annas was not officially the high priest. He'd been deposed by the Romans, but the Jews still honored him as high priest, so that's why he has the title here. He's like the godfather of the whole operation. Caiaphas is his nephew. He's officially the high priest. And if you read the Gospels, you know that Annas and Caiaphas were both instrumental in Jesus' trial and condemnation and crucifixion. John and Alexander, we're not sure who they are exactly, but they're probably related to Annas and Caiaphas, part of the, part of the family. It's an incredibly powerful dynasty. But they're not alone. You see the rulers and elders and scribes, that's, the, that's probably language describing the Sanhedrin, the whole Sanhedrin gathered. Uh, that would be 71 men, Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, lawyers, scholars. Uh, and they gather somewhere probably in the, temple, in the temple precincts. We're not sure exactly where, but it must be a large chamber if it's inside because the 71 are all seated on chairs in a semicircle. 
That's how it would be. And the accused, well, Luke tells us here, when they had set them in the midst, the accused stand in the center. This this semicircle was 71 men. Imagine what that must have been like. Peter and John are fishermen. They're not orators. They're not lawyers. They're untrained in public debate. They have no no idea how to do public debate. Their clothing and their accents and their mannerisms would identify them as, as common. Common men. They don't have great educations. They're surrounded by the best minds in Israel. It's like being interrogated by uh, the faculty at Oxford University on the resurrection. How do you even begin? And and, and the the chief spokesman here is Peter. Remember the last time Peter was interrogated? How did that go? The servant girl in in, in Caiaphas's Caiaphas's courtyard. You're one of those guys. I saw you with with this Jesus. Oh, what? I don't even know who you're talking about. Who's this Jesus person? I've never heard his name. Yeah, I have a Galilean accent. I don't know. I'm just passing through. And then it goes on. And at the end, he's calling down curses on himself uh, from God. If I know this man, if I even know who this Jesus is, may I be damned, he says, basically. And now he's standing here surrounded by 71 members of the Sanhedrin. And they ask him, by what power, by what name did you do this? Or by what name did you do this? Now, this is not an information-gathering question. It's not like the Sadducees and Pharisees are thinking, oh, I wonder who, I wonder who these men are and what they're, what, what they're claiming to be doing. They know the answer to this question. Jesus was formally and legally, con- or illegally, but legally, condemned to death for blasphemy by these men. And if Peter and John self-identify as his followers, they also can be condemned as blasphemers. And that's that's what they're trying to do by asking this question. They want want these men to say, we're doing all this in Jesus' name. Uh, You can't really see it in the English, but there's the way this is phrased, there's contempt just pouring out of this sentence. The, the, The Greek construction places the word you at the very end of the sentence. And so the sentence is, Uh, Something like this. By what power or authority or name uh, was this done by men like you? It's kind of of contemptuous uh, curl to their lips as the words pour out. Now, I think there's a temptation here for Peter and John. Uh, Think about the condition, think about the state of the church right now. Thousands have come to faith in Jesus. Thousands have, have believed the gospel. And the Sanhedrin, they can shut things down quickly. They have power. So if I were in Peter's shoes, I might be seriously considering something like, you know, how, maybe we can make some kind of accommodation. Maybe, maybe I won't preach Jesus here in the temple. We'll, we'll confine ourselves to our house churches, to, our, to private venues. We won't, we won't do this, we won't do this publicly. Or, hey, you know, we don't actually have to preach in his name at all. Uh, We don't actually have to use his name. We'll preach about things that tend to unite the people, not divide the people. Because we have a lot in common, don't we? We we share the same scriptures. We have a hope in in the Messiah, although we might differ about who the Messiah is. We We can just talk about the hope of the Messiah. We have a belief in one God. 
That's lots of common ground. We'll just talk about what unites us rather than what divides us. A few years back, a Christian student group at Harvard um, found uh, that a female student leader in the group was, was partnered. She had a lesbian partner, and they, for some reason they hadn't figured that out beforehand. And they said, look, if you want to keep being a leader here, you've got to step down. Uh, we love you, but we can't affirm what you're doing, and so you can't represent us in, on, on campus. Um, and so they, she wouldn't stop, and so they removed her. And the university demanded that the group reinstate reinstate the student, or be put on probation and ultimately kicked off campus. What do you do? Because if you you don't obey, what what happens? You lose your voice. You, You lose your place on campus, and fewer people will hear the truth. But with that last thing, fewer people will hear the truth, that's that's where the rub comes in. Because the truth isn't just a set of propositions so you can just choose the ones least likely to, to rub people the wrong way. The truth is a person. So you barter part of him away and you're not talking about him anymore. You're actually presenting a Jesus shaped by his enemies. Don't do that. And this is supremely, supremely relevant stuff for you and for me because our culture has gone increasingly mad. And you're going to face this sort of thing if you haven't already faced it. But God is sovereign. And, and every trial that you face comes directly from him and you don't know exactly what he's doing in every situation. So your job is just to tell the truth and trust him with, with the consequences. And that's what Peter does. And, and, and look what's happened Here. The Sanhedrin doesn't know what they've gotten themselves into. They have wanted Jesus silenced and snuffed out. But Jesus, only three or four weeks after he was apparently silenced and snuffed out, sets his chief apostle right there in the midst of these guys to preach to them. And they can't help it. They've even asked him to do it. So here he is, getting ready to preach the gospel to these men. Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a little bit different than it was three or four weeks ago, wasn't it, when the servant girl answered him. Peter here is filled with the Holy Spirit. We have more to hope for now. Now, the week before he died, Jesus took Peter and James and John and Andrew aside, and he said to them, uh, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be dragged before kings and judges and all, uh, all sorts of authorities for my name's sake. Settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus was saying, don't don't strategize. Don't plan your speeches. I'll give you the words. Now, you got to be careful here because I know some, some preachers who think this means something like, I don't have to prepare my sermons. I can just get up to the pulpit and open my mouth and, and Jesus' words will flow out. That doesn't work like that. Uh, if you're preaching or teaching, that's, that's not what happens. This is about persecution, not about preaching. And, and while I've seen Jesus do this for many in our day, and myself included at times, uh, help give us wisdom and words, um, at the same time, I, I, this is for the apostles in particular. And what a comfort it must be if he remembered those words. What a comfort it must be for Peter. He doesn't have to worry about eloquence. He doesn't have to worry about finding the right words. He just has to speak. 
and trust Jesus. He says to them, uh, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done for a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Uh, we'll stop there for a minute. A man who's been crippled his entire life is, is standing right there. Peter, Peter maybe is, is gesturing, gesturing to him. Uh, you can go home and search the Bible and read the whole thing, and you're not going to find a single law against healing someone. It's not there. So Peter's point to this, you, you, you guys should be praising God that this man is standing. What kind of shepherds are you? What kind of shepherds aren't happy when, when one of the sheep is, who's been sick is made well? Shouldn't you be rejoicing? Uh, that word healed, and it's translated healed there, and we've noticed this many times before, and I'm going to continue to point it out every time it pops up. That word healed is in Greek the word more commonly used for saved. There's a more narrow and specific word for physical healing that's not used here. It's the word saved. In the Gospels and in Acts, you consistently find that happening, using that word saved instead of healed. And there's a reason for that. Medical science advances every day. It's much more advanced today than it was back in Peter's day. But it's never going to conquer death. I don't care what kind of stuff they come up with. It's not going to conquer death. Disease and sickness will always be with us. And the, the human body is, is subject to both of them, infirmity and death. Nothing you or I can do will, will stop that. But death and disease... Those are outward and visible symptoms of, of the greater and deeper illness that we all have. The sickness of the soul. You can't fix that either. And if nothing's done, there's only everlasting death for you. But God has sent his son. He speaks and the lame walk. He speaks and, and, and souls are cured and sinners repent. And the lost are found and life is imparted to the dead. That's why Peter doesn't just say, uh, because he could have stopped here. He could have said, hey, this man has been saved uh, from sickness, from, from lameness, and he's standing here. His disability has been cured, so I haven't broken any laws. We're going to leave. Um, isn't it grand? We're going to go on, in fact, and we're going to go heal more people. We're going to fight against sickness and hunger and all the material ills of the day. He could just stop there, stop here, and go on, but he doesn't. I'm glad. If that's all the church did or said, help people, feed people, it's a good thing, but we'd be sending millions of people to eternal judgment with a full tummy. Peter has to say more, and he does. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. That's that third time he uses that phrase in Acts. By him, this man is standing before you well. Now, the men of the Sanhedrin, the 71 men there, they see themselves as good, righteous, and holy. Do you know, do you know anyone who thinks of himself or herself as good, righteous, and holy? Maybe, maybe you think of yourself as good, righteous, and holy. I hope not, but maybe you do. People who see themselves as good, righteous, and holy are not looking for a savior. They're looking for a rewarder. 
Jesus isn't passing out rewards. He's, he's a savior. To be saved, you need to see yourself as someone who needs saving. Peter loves these men. Jesus loves these men. The, the men want Peter's blood and John's. Peter wants them to repent and live, and so he tells them the truth. Jesus is your Christ, and you have crucified him. God has overturned your verdict. And as proof, look at this man standing before you. This Jesus, they say, this Jesus, John says, or excuse me, Peter says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, that's, that's a, you might recognize that. That's from Psalm 118. Uh, but the psalm has it this way. Just listen carefully. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do you see the difference there between what Peter said? Peter inserts the you. Jesus is the stone that was, build, was rejected by you, the builders. He's, he's telling these guys, you have fulfilled Psalm 118. That psalm was about you rejecting the Messiah. And the imagery is simple. Uh, workmen selecting a stone, stones to build a house, and they come across a stone that doesn't look like the other stones, and so they think it's flawed, and they throw it aside. They don't use it. But it's the one stone upon which the entire house depends. The house you're building, Peter's saying, is going to collapse because you've cast aside the cornerstone, who's Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. And there's no salvation, he says. No salvation, in, there's, there's no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven, given under heaven, I'm sorry, under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. A well-known preacher, you probably know his name, I won't name him. A well-known preacher was asked on some news talk show, is Jesus the only way to heaven? And he said, I don't know. I just know he's my way. Now, that sounds very humble. I can't speak for the whole world. I can only speak for me. And when it comes to spirituality, many prefer to think of it as a kind of a personal thing, a matter of, a matter of personal preference. Whatever works for you and, and, and gives you your life meaning is just fine. But, but Jesus has said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and there is no way to the Father except through me. So if you say, no, no, there are others, or maybe there are others, I just don't know, that's not humble. That's not humility. You're, you're defying the words of the living God. That's, there's no way to fit humility into that. He has, God has, given one name under heaven, Jesus Christ, by which you must be saved. Now, these are religious men. Think about who these are. These are religious men. These are sincere men. These are monotheistic men. These are Jewish men, men who honor, honor the scriptures. But Peter's telling them, apart from Jesus, you cannot be saved. Okay, some say, well, uh, uh, if you earnestly keep the tenets of any religion, God will apply vicariously the work of Christ to you. So yes, you can only be saved through Jesus, but if you're a good Jew, 
or a good Muslim or a good Buddhist, then Jesus will save you through those things. Now, I, 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 I sympathize with the intent of those words, the meaning or the reason someone might say something like that, but, but I want you to notice in our text that if that idea were true, Peter should say something like, you guys keep on being devout Jews. You keep doing that, because you're fine. But he doesn't say that. There's no other name. No other name. And this name has been given, revealed among men, among human beings. God hasn't kept the salvation, uh, the, the salvation secret. You can have it. Well, what, saved, saved from what? Well, well saved from the judgment that's coming to all men and all women because of sin, which is the universal human condition. God has provided the one name, only one, from in whom you can avoid and escape that judgment. That's a, that's a hard thing for people who demand a variety of products to, cho- to, to choose from, to come to grips with. I mean, I go to the grocery store, at least before, a long time ago, you could go to the grocery store and find a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of products to choose from, and you buy the one that, uh, buy the things you most like. And so sometimes we get the, we just assume, well, religion should be just like that. Choose your spiritual product, and so long as you're happy, that's what matters. But what does that do? That makes the, the consumer, that makes the, the chooser, God. You determine good, you determine truth, you determine all of those things for yourself. And, and when that happens, we're right back there in Genesis chapter 3 with the serpent and the fruit and all that. It's fitting and it's good. It's fitting and it's good that to save self-worshippers, God requires that you forsake yourself and trust his son. Note the, the, the words again. There's one name given by which we must be saved. We must be saved. Because we're all lame and sick and doomed to die. And there's a savior, a good doctor, who came to cure us. This is really good news for the Sanhedrin if they listen. This is really good news for anyone to this point who might have rejected Jesus and disregarded him. He is the Savior. He can be your Savior. Turn to him and he will forgive you. Give you new life. And what good news for people who have already turned to him because uh, I've believed in him for a long time, but I still struggle with sin. And sometimes I don't even struggle. I just go ahead and sin. I just sin without any struggle at all. Battered by, uh, by sin's wreckage in my soul, weary of fighting it. Uh, sometimes I'm riddled with shame. Maybe you are too. But you and I, believers in Jesus, we still have a Savior, a perfect Savior, a shepherd who promises that he will, at the end of the day, wipe us completely free or make us completely free from sin. A shepherd who's promised not to lose a single one of his sheep, who binds all of your wounds and heals all of your diseases, uh, who is pleased with you because you're his. You have a savior. You've been given a savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to the Lord in his name. Father, we thank you uh, that you have sent your son 
to save us. We thank you that you have given us this news. You've we spread it abroad. We, we thank you. For, for those of us who do believe, we thank you that you've given us the grace to believe. We ask you to give us the courage uh, to say the truth, to speak the truth to those who are around us. Uh, in, a, in a compassionate way, in a loving way, but in a way that doesn't hide or conceal or obscure the truth. I pray for those here who may not believe that they might be brought to faith. And I pray for those in our families and friend, uh, among our friends who don't believe that you might help us know how to speak to them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.